This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson, and thank you for joining us for episode 24 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guests today are firefighters in the Air Force Reserves, firefighters for Indianapolis Fire Department in Indianapolis, Indiana, and instructors for the Air Force Reserve Firefighter Rescue and Survival Course held at Dobbins Air Reserve Base in Marietta, Georgia. Please welcome Travis Bender and Chris Boykley. All right, welcome Travis, Chris. Great to have you guys on. Our good friend Whit Dotson, who we recorded with not too long ago, put me in contact with Chris, I, was, I think it was, um, told me that there was a fireground survival rapid intervention course that the uh, the reserve put on up in Indiana. And so, you know, we called you guys up and asked you to come on and talk about it because it sounds awesome. So, but uh, before we get into too much of that, I'd like to hear a bit about each of you. So tell us where you're from, where you work, you know, and how long you've been in the service. Yeah, so I'm Chris Boykley. I'm a reservist out of Grissom in Indiana. Uh, I'm going on 15 years in the reserves. Uh, civilian side, I work for the Indianapolis Fire Department. Uh, I'm on Engine 10 on the east side, if anybody's familiar. And I live here in Indy with my wife, Kelsey, and our newborn daughter, Cora. Awesome. And great to meet you, Chris. Thanks for coming on, man. How about you, Travis? Yeah, I'm uh, Travis Bender, uh, Master Sergeant, also out of Grissom. Uh, up northern Indiana, and uh, been doing that for. I, I got in just shortly after Chris did, so we kind of came up through the ranks together a little bit. Uh, so just going on 14 years there. Uh, civilian side, I also work for Indianapolis. Um, I live south side Garfield Park area. If you're familiar with Indianapolis, um, with my wife, new wife Olivia. Uh, she uh, we just got married in May, so and uh, we got two crazy dogs and. That's about it for, for that. Awesome, man. Congrats. Congrats on the marriage. That's awesome. So working in Indianapolis, uh, that's pretty cool. I know, uh, you know, you, you're probably going to see a, a heavier call volume than we will in the Air Force. So having that knowledge base to to back up your instruction of the, the rapid intervention stuff and the fire ground survival, man, that's, sounds like we're in for some good content, man. I'm excited about it. So talk about the course a little bit. So... First of all, and correct me if I'm wrong, Air Force Reserve component, Fireground Survival Rapid Intervention Course. I'm, I'm sure there's a specific name, like a formal name for it. But uh, you know, can you can you guys briefly explain what the course is, what the name is, and, and what it's about? Yeah, so it's AFRC's Firefighter Rescue and Survival class. Uh, we call it FRAS for short. Uh, that's kind of the nickname we gave it. Um, it's we actually hold it down in Georgia, uh, Dobbins Air Reserve Base in Georgia. They have a huge training site. They put on a bunch of other classes as well. This is just one of the classes that they offer. We got in touch with them, and uh, they were gracious enough to host us. You know, uh, it's five days long, roughly about fifty hours, Monday through Friday. Uh, we have a, a whole host of objectives we meet through each day, so it's kind of like a done when you're done kind of thing. Uh, could go as long as you know 10, 10 hours i mean depending on how the the uh students perform so as the name implies it's rapid intervention uh, a lot of you know rick operations rick tactics and fire ground survival skills uh self survival and then uh a lot of the drill most of the drills are supplemented with uh large scenarios 
so it's very intensive, physically demanding, mentally draining course. You know, you're in gear, you know, up to 10 hours a day. So really the only time we're in the classroom is the beginning. We talk about some of the stuff we're going to talk about today with you. And yeah, the rest of the week they're in gear, they're working. And, uh, you know, we have uh, all the scenarios are dealing the realm of uh, just the very nature of rick operations or fire ground survival all deals in you know high risk low frequency events so if you're familiar with the jahari's window of you know if you picture a window with four panes uh one of those panes represents high risk low frequency events those are your mayday type fire ground survival you know the the stuff hits the fan right and so those are the that's the realm we operate in um, you know, every scenario the student runs into throughout the week meets Mayday criteria, and uh, they have to solve all their problems. It's a very progressive course, which Chris could talk more about if you, if you got anything to add, Chris. Yeah, um, that was something that was really important to us developing the course was to ensure that it, it's entirely progressive, right? Meaning that students learn everything they need to know early in the week that they'll need for later in the week. So. They've got far less to manage Monday, Tuesday than they do Wednesday, Thursday. And we think that's really one of the only ways to uh, start to tap into that fight or flight response that you would feel real world that say you're, you know, humping hose for 15 minutes and now you fall through a floor. You know, obviously we can't make students fear for their lives for real in training, but we can, you know, give them, you know, multiple decisions to make, right? And we can tax them physically and we can give them more to manage, you know, as the week progresses. Hopefully to start to make the way that they would feel if that happened real world charted territory a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. And and we may get into this a little bit later, but you know, what what's the why? So I, I know down in Dobbins, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the reserves do it's kind of uh Maybe like a pre-deployment training site. Is that the idea of what they're doing down at Dobbins? And and you guys called up and said, you know, hey, we'd like to do this course, and they let you in down there. What was the uh, what was the motivator behind that? Yeah. So uh, we uh, Chris and I had uh, taken a few courses um, in Rick operations. It kind of that were modeled very similar to what we're doing here, and uh, we were. Talking one day, I mean, really, it was like kind of, you know, uh, you know, over a beer talking about some of the things we learned and and, you know, where a lot of the really uh, learning takes place. Right. Is uh, is recapping at the over a pint. Right. And we uh, started talking about, you know, how do we bring some of that mentality? So we were we were, took a class uh, called Smoke Diver in Georgia and Indiana and then uh, fire, down, fire Department Training Network on the south side of Indianapolis has great instructors, very knowledgeable, experienced old-timers that have been doing this a long time that taught us a ton. And, you know, we talked about how do we bring some of that mindset and that, that mentality uh, with in addition to the, the things we've been learning through, you know, some of the uh, books that we've been reading about survival and, and uh, physiological and and psychological responses to stress. How do we package that up and, and deliver it at the Air Force level, right? And we started implementing it at our home bit home unit. Started, uh, you know, 
getting our our troops spun up on it. And we just honestly had like kind of bigger aspirations for it. We're like, well, how can we expand this to to further, you know, to bring up Air Force firefighting to that, you know, that realm or that that level. And uh, we started talking and we have uh, our, our chief, Aaron Daner, uh, our deputy chief, uh, Nick Ward. Uh, they're both really knowledgeable on obviously the Air Force side of things. And uh, like Nick is a instructor for RIT Under Fire in Illinois for the Illinois Fire Service Institute. Uh, chief Daner is very kind of he's, he's a great you know, facilitator for that kind of thing, gave us resources to do what we wanted to do. He suggested that we get in touch with the uh, TCC guys down in Georgia. And yeah, they do a lot of pre-deployment training and uh, stuff like that, but they have all the, all the resources down there. So why not, you know, get in touch with them and really try to, uh, um, you know, make it a, a reserve thing. And it just kind of grew from there. We thought we were going to get a bunch of, you know, <laughs> uh, kickback on it and you know it's not a requirement right this isn't a, a a dod cert you're getting it's not a pro boards kind of thing right so we thought we were going to get a little kickback and surprisingly like our like support the support of the leadership all the way up has been super supportive and uh it it was pretty smooth sailing and then we expanded it we we allow you know uh people from all over the dod firefighters from all over the dod so we've had active duty uh, civilian Navy, uh, you know, civilian side, and then obviously reserves, it's open to the guard and all that. So, and sister service. So that's kind of like why we came up with it. And, uh, yeah, and, and I think it's important to note too, that we didn't come up with anything new, you know, like I said, we, these were all things that were delivered to us. We really, Chris and I acted as facilitators or, or collaborators, I should say. We got in touch with a lot of instructors throughout the, the, uh, our command that had a ton of passion and, and ta like talent, you know, and expertise in this subject. And it just made sense to bring our, pull our resources together. Uh, we had a couple guys from Hawaii that were down there a week before and they built all the props we needed and everything. And it just like, it was like, it was meant to be kind of thing. And it just kind of came together like that. And, uh, it just so happened it coincided with the DOD coming out with a Rick CBT. And, um, you know, which is a great CBT. It gives you the working knowledge and the cognitive functions of RIC operations. But I think we all can agree that, you know, to really learn these skills, you got to get hands on it. Right. And uh, so that's where, you know, we hope to come in and uh, and facilitate that. Yeah, some of that stuff is the most important. Get well, it is the most important. Get that hands-on training. You don't necessarily have to walk away with a certification. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I'll print, I'll print you out a cert if that's what you want. But, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. This, this is some of the. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the stuff that that really matters. Yeah. Um, and and it, you know, it sounds like something that could eventually end up as curriculum, maybe in the DoD Academy at some point. You know, depending on how far you guys take this, because that'd be nice. You know, yeah, yeah, it sounds great. And did you guys collaborate at all with the people that developed that CBT that's on Total Force Virtual Learning Center? I think it was guys up at Fairchild that developed that. Yeah, it would have been, I can't remember what year, but um, we went with um, yeah, that group from Fairchild to Niagara to start to put together a, an Air Force-wide uh, lesson plan. Um, and, you know, our course is Separate from that, you know, a lot of the same skills and drills are, um, you know, taught in both courses. Um, but I, I haven't heard 
you know, I guess any kind of follow up, you know, with where they're at on, you know, being able to bring something to the the total force. Um, but we certainly see a need for it. We, um, I think the other piece to that puzzle is I think the fire service as a whole is light years behind law enforcement and certainly combat specific AFSDs and MOSs in teaching our guys what to expect, you know, when the fight or flight response kicks in, um, you know, and just to understand that when that happens, you know, you're, you're not thinking with your, your rational brain, the way we're thinking right now, having this conversation on this podcast. Yeah, Chris, let's get into that a little bit. Um, so that, that would definitely tie into a, a why, why the cr- course was created. Cause you, you know, the best way to prepare for those fight or flight scenarios is to, to do it right. Or to practice it. Just like you mentioned earlier, I, you know, we can't simulate somebody falling through the floor, but we can do our best job to try to simulate that. So I don't know. Can you talk on it a little bit? Um, understanding kind of the fight or flight, the, the human psychology or the human physiology behind it and, you know, how you tie it into the course. Yeah. So during the course, we talk a lot about the amygdala hijack. Um, and that's kind of what I was making a reference to where, you know, when our, you know, when your life flashes before your eyes or whatever happens in that moment that you, you know, think you might not come out of that situation, you know, whatever it might be, we're not thinking with our rational brains, right? Our emotional brains take over and we instinctively react. And so an example of that might be, um, you know, running out of air. Uh, I would bet most people listening to this podcast, sitting in a, you know, a training room at 70 degrees could recite perfectly what they would do if they were to run out of air, right? They'd say, I'd drop to the ground. I call a mayday. I try to do my emergency procedure. That didn't work. I'd filter breathe and try to self-extricate or shelter in place, right? Textbook. Mm-hmm. But that's likely very different from how they would react if that happened for real. Because what they're combating is a deeply evolutionary reaction, right? I think of, I mentioned I've got a, a newborn daughter and as demented as this example might be, if something were to cover her face, she doesn't have to be taught to try to pull away from it, right? She knows that instinctively. And that's what we're trying to combat here. And that's, there's a, a pretty incredible phenomenon with firefighters um, and with scuba divers being found with, in this example, with their, their face pieces ripped off, but with air remaining in their cylinder. And that's exactly why, you know, we're, we have to follow up the, the cognitive training with the, the hands-on training. And it's got to be repetitive and it's got to be under stress to begin to hope that we're going to react appropriately if we're in that situation for real. Yeah. A bunch of great points. So when developing this course, when developing the curriculum, were you studying any line of duty deaths within the fire service, within the American fire service? You mentioned people having masks on and taking them off with air still in their cylinder. Is a lot of what you teach based around that? Yeah. So actually every single skill and drill is tied to a NIOSH report throughout the entire course. Uh, and that kind of, you know, provides the why and helps get, you know, buy-in from the students as to why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but we found in building the course that, you know, literally no NIOSH report says that, you know, everything was going perfect until this one catastrophic thing happened, 
right? Every single one has contributing factors being little things that added up to lead to the big thing being the line of duty death. And so a lot of the course is built around, um, you know, identifying what those factors are. Um, and the course, we call them slack. So we've got a no slack standard um, throughout the whole course. And um, I mentioned to you, we've got our sins of slack but throughout the course. Um, there's all these little things that are repeatedly um, cited in NIOS reports as contributing to line of duty deaths that a lot of times we're in full control of. Um, and that's a big point throughout FRAS that we try to, you know, impress upon the students that we need to control everything that we can control. Um, so any any instance of slack um, that we can control, we should, because it may be what makes the difference for ourselves or for somebody else. It, I'll get into the slack here in a second, but it sounds like you guys are probably well read on Gordon Graham and his high risk, low frequency stuff. I've heard him talk quite a few times and I've mentioned him on episodes before because I went to a seminar last year in August. So about a year, a year ago now, and he talked very extensively on focusing on root causes of problems and not so much the surface level or what you see in a NIOSH report or a line of duty. There was a root cause for why something went down. It sounds like you guys are getting after that a little bit, getting yeah, to, to where the rubber meets the road, where the firefighters in the ideal H and how he responds in that situation. Right. We're trying to stand up as many dominoes as we can in the domino effect. Right. And, uh, you know, yeah, Gordy Graham, that that's kind of what we're talking about with the Jahari's window with the, uh, you know, high risk, low frequency, you know, the, the other important aspect of that is to not ignore the other pains of that window. Right. So we have to we have to first work on our fundamentals. That's the low risk, low frequency, the stuff we don't do a lot, but doesn't have a lot of risk involved. You still got to be good at that stuff. Uh, the high risk, high frequency. We do it all the time. So, you know, but you still got to train on it and you got to improve your abilities. That's, you know, the the, uh, you know, the fundamentals of our job. You got to work on those before you can move into the high risk. And, you know, I, we can sit here and. and you know, we try really hard not to operate in the world of theory. Uh, that's why it was super important to us to, you know, accompany the drills with NIOSH reports to uh, have experienced instructors that we, we have uh, uh, instructors in our cadre that have actually been involved in Mayday incidents and bringing their expertise. And, you know, the best instructors have experience, knowledge, and the training, right? And if you want to be an instructor, you have to um, you know, spend the 95% of your time being a student, right. And, uh, and then collaborating and, and, uh, pushing out the material. Right. And so that was really important to us to make sure that we don't operate in that world of, of theory, that it's actually practical sound, uh, techniques and tactics that we're teaching. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And, and I think it a lot about Slack after you had mentioned that Slack sounds to me, like what you'd mentioned, Travis, you know, Chris, you mentioned Slack, but Travis, you'd mentioned uh, doing those fundamental things and practicing those fundamental things. Slack sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, like the deep, the, those small details, uh, uh, putting your gear on or, or bringing in the right equipment or making one smooth pass to the seat of the fire or, you know, the, those little tiny details that end up making the difference. Is, is that right? 
That's exactly right. And I mentioned, you know, we've got a, a list of sins of Slack, right? Throughout the course, uh, they're paid for by 10 push-ups after the whatever the skill or drill. Both the student and the instructor pay for them. Um, just an attempt to to reinforce, you know, the why, right? Behind why disconnecting your regulator with air remaining in an IDLH is a sin of slack. Because there are dozens of NIOSH reports where that's occurred, where a stressful event has happened and the firefighters ripped their mask off or disconnected their regulator with good air on their back. Um, another, so, go ahead. another sin of slack that we talk about is giving the wrong location on a mayday, right? That, that's a contributing factor in tons of NIOS reports. And so, you know, if throughout FRAS, a student, you know, gives their mayday and says they're on floor three, but they're really on two, and now command sending every resource they have to three, you know, that could be it. Just that one instance of slack is what could have made the difference. And so you guys have developed scenarios to intentionally put people into these circumstances to where you you know how they're going to react and, and you're trying to kind of beat it out of them, for lack of a better term. You know, ho- hopefully they react the right way, but you know that some people won't. And so you kind of you beat those bad. Exactly. Out yeah. So, you know, there was a buzzword in the fire service and training uh, called stress inoculation for a num- number of years. And I don't know, in my experience, I've learned that or I've, I've seen that that buzzword kind of get manipulated or twisted to give certain instructors uh, a free pass and just being a jerk, right? And kind of beat their chest or be ego-driven, right? And that's the right. opposite of what we're trying to do here. Stress inoculation is, is I don't want to say slowly or even gradually, but introducing stress at a controlled rate to in Right. And making it realistic exactly. too, and right? increasing the student's threshold to uh, to uh, be able to manage more as the week goes on or as scenarios advance. Gotcha. Okay, and so when you say progressive, that's what you mean exactly. by progressive. You, you're progressively introducing them yeah. into more and so stress. Kind of going back to or, or, you know the uh, how we handle our instructors. Uh, I feel like this is another a- aspect that makes our class unique is we have a very robust instructor OJT program. Um, you know, all the, like Chris mentioned, all the instructors have met all the standards that we have set forth. And, you know, Chris could talk about like the standards more if you want, but, um, you know, we have a very robust instructor OJT. So we make sure that, um, the instructors are on the same page about how we're introducing stress. Right. And uh, there was a buzzword that went uh, through the corporate world uh, back in like the late 80s, early 90s called uh, a flow state. And what that means is basically you're performing a skill or you're performing a task uh, perfectly matching your ability and you can perform it without thinking. Right. So that a good example would be uh, for a firefighter calling a mayday. Right. Uh, Throughout the week, you know, at the beginning of the week, some of some of our students have maybe never practice calling maydays. So just that one skill in itself may, be, may cause anxiety in the student. And if a skill is, if you picture a kind of a graph, um, you know, if a skill is or a task is requires so 
so much skill above, above what the student is capable of handling their ability. You know, they, it introduces in a realm of anxiety. That's where they're operating. If it's too simple for them, and their skill is too high, then they're bored, right? So you want to meet that perfect match. And that's your flow state where you're performing without even thinking about it. It perfectly matches your ability. So going back to the Mayday scenario or uh, example, you know, the student calling a Mayday at the beginning of the week, they're going to be anxiety written, uh, you know, just keying up the mic and giving their location, going through their, their acronym, whatever that is that they decide to use. And remembering where they are, that's a lot to manage. But throughout the week, every situation has met Mayday criteria. So by the end of the week, they have to call. They can't be anxiety-ridden by calling the Mayday. they got to do that without thinking because they have so much more to manage in the scenarios. So that's kind of what we mean by the the stress inoculation and using flow state to keep students engaged and increasing that that threshold of what they're able to handle. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. That was exactly what I was going to say to to follow up with that. You're increasing the threshold of of what they're able to handle so that their flow state is a stressful situation. You know, um, as you were talking about the Mayday scenario, I I thought about a, um, a NIOS report that I read. I think it was the fire in 88, in New York, it was a car dealership. There were tires in the attic space. You know, you, you guys maybe oh, maybe it was New Jersey. Hackensack. Anyways, yeah. Hackensack fire. The IC wasn't acknowledging the Mayday call. Is there any um, integration with command element or, or someone outside of the IDLH, the, the communication piece of it? Because it sounds like the IC is at fault in, in some of these reports. You know, so the students are issued radios at the beginning of the week. So all communication is actually done, you know, on their radio to establish that muscle memory and to get used to listening back, right, for communication from command. So there'll be an instructor running command um, for every scenario. And a lot of the um, kind of the non-scenario drills, uh, just because that's that's an important piece of the puzzle that I, I think we neglect a lot of times in fire training is listening to your radio, being able to effectively communicate, you know, with command on your radio and be able to coordinate together in that sense to do whatever needs done. So the students are communicating with the instructors who act as the command. Um, I don't know, from from your guys' perspective, in, in just reading some of these studies and, you know, 15 years in service, do you, you think that uh, incident commanders should have some semblance of training with this yeah, kind of stuff? We, absolutely. Yeah, we... Um, We've actually had some discussions about that, you know, uh, so fire department training network does a really good, uh, commanding the RIC class. I've never taken it. I've just heard really good things from people who have, um, I highly recommend checking that out if you get the chance, but, um, you know, we've, we've talked about, I, I'm, I'm definitely not going to sit here and say that I'm you know, an expert in, in, uh, IC operations, especially for a, a RIT, you know, uh, but we've had, uh, so chief, the command chief, of Duke Air Reserve Station, I think is what it's called, uh, down at down outside of Eglin. Uh, he's a command chief master sergeant, but he kind of came up through the pipeline through Air Force uh, firefighting. And he's a civilian job. He's a battalion chief for uh, Dothan, Alabama. And he was he came out and did a really good presentation on 
commanding a, an actual Mayday event. And he's kind of talked about that too. Like, you know, I, I think having people like that to, to incorporate an IC aspect would be, I mean, I mean, if we're talking, you know, um, aspirations, that would be definitely one of them, you know? So we call this class, uh, air force or firefighter rescue and survival. Technically it's one level one. Now uh, we kind of pictured it like a, a rescue school, uh, what rescue school used to be kind of thing. Right. Yeah, it could so, be tiered. So we kind of left it open for that. And then big aspirations. Yeah. We could maybe in the future do something like that. But. We've certainly built a good foundation. Yeah. It sounds like, but yeah, it sounds like a great idea. It's something that I would certainly sure. love to participate in. Um, you know, I, f- I feel the role as an assistant chief now and yeah, I wouldn't feel comfortable uh, in that kind of circumstance. Many never, people would. Um, never, never. No, I, I mean, I understand that they're few and far between really. And that's why there's classes like what you guys designed to try to get after that. Um, talking a little bit about the standards you mentioned earlier for instructors, you know, what, what are the standards? What, what does it take to be an instructor or something like this? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned we've got something called the no slack standard. Um, and it's essentially a go, no go standard for every single skill or drill. Um, and so everybody that meets the no slack standard for each uh, objective throughout the course uh, gets the no slack patch when they graduate. And then that's the um, pool of firefighters that will pull for our instructor OJT program. So um, that's something that's really important to us. Again, that, you know, every instructor can meet every single standard that they're teaching. And something that's a little atypical about the course is that everything gets demoed by an instructor in full gear and SCBA before a student does anything. And almost every scenario has a live victim, which is an instructor besides our live fire scenarios. Uh, and that, you know, one provides the realism of, of how an actual body will actually move. And then it also gives our instructors a pretty intimate view about how the objective went. Well, that you, your instructors have credibility as instructors. Hey, watch yeah. me do it. Like, Exactly. Okay, now you go do it. You know, well, this guy actually does know what he's talking about. You know, he's not standing up in the podium and talking about everything that he knows. And so the the instructors are required to go through, if I'm understanding this right, they're required to go through the course before they can actually be instructors or even be in the pool of acceptable instructors. Yeah, so that's part of our instructor, instructor OJT. Uh, we try to, you know, obviously, Chris and I aren't always going to be in the Air Force, and we would like to see this program continue, right? So bringing students who performed well back uh, who have met the standards and, you know, introducing maybe the, the first, you know, first few times there's a, there's a buildup to it, right? They have to, they're probably going to be a victim a lot. You know, they, they're learning how to instruct or the, the, with the model that we're presenting, I guess. Um, and over time, we're letting them take over, entire scenarios, entire evolutions where they're in charge of it, right? As the lead instructor. And, you know, Chris and I have gone back and forth on leading the course, right? So hopefully, hopefully in the future, we can pass that on to other instructors and they can take it and run with it. And that's kind of the, the mentorship aspect of it, of, of bringing instructors back and, and building the course for future, you know, generations. Yeah, it sounds like a good system you got built. And just thinking as you're talking, we could almost use the same construct for other fire ground classes. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we get Whit Dotson out there talking about 
hose advancements and you know hose flowing and nozzles Absolutely. and everything else. You know, it sounds like, and you get out there, you get your hands on, and you have to prove yourself before you can teach it, and it's a week long or whatever. Uh, it, it sounds like there's a uh, sounds like that that would be something good for for Air Force fire protection and definitely DOD. So, yeah, I do want to add too with the the no slack standard. A no go doesn't mean that you know a student's removed from the course. Um, so you know they still continue on with training. It's not a big deal. You know it happens frequently. Um, but you know, the standard is the standard at the end of the day. And so we always say if, you know, a student comes in and knocks it out of the park, outstanding, we don't make it harder. But if a student doesn't meet the standard, that doesn't mean that they're a bad fireman. It just means they've got something to work on, which is the whole point for students and instructors. That's why we're there to find any little weakness we could possibly have and fix it. Yeah. Well, failure is a part of growth. It's important to important to stumble so exactly. they can learn what to do right let's talk a little bit about survival mindset uh, you guys mentioned that to me I, you may have hit on it already i don't know but uh, explain what the survival mindset is so there's a guy named lawrence gonzalez um, who has a book called deep survival uh, who i highly recommend uh, to anybody in the fire service um, and lawrence believes that there's a very discoverable science behind who lives who dies and why right why a Navy SEAL, you know, dies on a routine kayaking trip with his family, but why a seven-year-old girl can survive a plane crash and live on her own in the jungle for a week before being rescued. And so there are a couple principles in this book that uh, permeate through FRAS, and one of them is understanding the mental models that we've each developed through recognition prime decision-making. And what that is is bookmarks that we have in our brain that manifest themselves through a gut feeling that you see a situation and you know instantly what needs done. So that, just for example, compared to classical decision-making, which is how a computer works. So, you know, if a computer needs a Halligan bar, it's going to go find the apparatus, open the first compartment, look at the first tool and say, is this a Halligan bar? No, it's a gated Y. Looks at the next tool. Is this a Halligan bar? No, it's a hydrant wrench. It's going to work its way around systematically, eventually coming to a Halligan bar. The way recognition prime decision-making works is you know what a Halligan bar is because you were trained on it in the academy. You know where it's at on the rig because you checked it out that morning. You know how to use it, right, because you've used it throughout your career on fires. And so you see a door that needs forced and your brain can instantly snap to the irons, right? So... It's great and it's really important because it's efficient and we need that on the fire ground. But where we can get in trouble is when we apply an inaccurate bookmark to an unfamiliar situation. And I think one of the most common instances of that in the fire service is, at least on my job, nine times out of 10, we pull the inch and three quarter, 200 foot pre-connect. I mean, it gets the job done, right? We're pulling enough GP, GPMs to absorb the BTUs and the fire goes out. But we roll up on a real deal commercial fire. I think the most common example of that in the fire service is pulling the inch and three quarter pre-connect, right? Nine times out of 10, our bread and butter residential fires, that's plenty of GPMs to put the BTUs out. And, you know, it's great, but that one time we roll up on a real deal commercial fire 
And what do we do? We step off the rig, and we pull the inch and three quarter pre-connect because that's what our mental model says to do. That's what we've done in the past. It's always worked. And so we apply an inaccurate bookmark to an unfamiliar situation. And another, another part of that might be that we don't have a bookmark at all for a situation. And I think that's something that's pretty common in the Air Force that, sure, we go on plenty of in-flights. We've had brake fires, maybe an engine fire, but it's not every day that a heavy falls out of the sky. Right. So that's why it's so important to train on it. But we got to recognize that in ourselves, that we likely don't have a, a bookmark at all for what that situation is going to be like. And that's where we can get in trouble. And so the course focused on kind of um, shaping that survival mindset and, and creating that recogni- recognition, prime decision making, cre- uh, creating that Rolodex of bookmarks. Um, in my understanding, that's exactly that right. right. And, and we're in control of the mental models we have to some extent, right? So the important thing is recognizing when a situation's changed and the mental model that we're applying, you know, isn't active anymore. We can we can train and recognize that in ourselves, but through training, we can develop these bookmarks, right? By seeking outside live fire training or whatever it might be. Um, we can develop them in ourselves. That's something that we're in full control of. And something else we, we talk a lot about is, you know, I mentioned Slack earlier. Um, Lawrence in, uh, in Deep Survival talks about the normalization of deviance. Mm-hmm. I love that. Which is the, the gradual process by which mm-hmm. unacceptable behavior becomes acceptable. Mm-hmm. Each one of us does it too, every single oh, yeah. day. That normalization of deviance starts with the rationalization, right? That maybe a, a shortcut saves time. So an example of that might be putting your seatbelt on, right? The, the run's right around the corner. I don't need to put my seatbelt on or uh, maybe checking out your pack in the morning. B-Shift didn't have a fire. I oh, know my pack's good. I'm not going to check it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe another. Or you did. You didn't have a fire last shift, and I was good last shift, so I'm going to be good this exactly. shift. Exactly. Or what about uh, peer pressure or pride? Yep. Those can be yep. part of the rationalization too. That maybe maybe you're part of a truck company that always goes to the roof, right? It's it's a point of pride yep. for your crew, and so now you roll up on something that fire's blowing out. It's self vented. It doesn't need another hole but you go to the roof anyways, because it's a point of pride. And so that unacceptable behavior gets repeated. And if there's no consequence, it's reinforced. Right. And it might be, you know, with ourselves personally as individual firefighters, it might be on your crew or it might be a a fire department wide infestation. Mm -hmm. I think a a prime example in the American fire service is obesity. Right. You can spend 20 years on this job and rationalize it with, you know, if the stuff really hits the fan, you know, my adrenaline's going to be pumping and I'll be able to pony up to do what needs done. Right. Or your physical ability is not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing, another good example, in my opinion, is uh, the use of, you know, respiratory protection or just protective clothing the right way. And, with the, the byproducts of combustion that are inside and outside of structure fires and, you know, kind of how we deal with that, how we wash our gear or, 
the fact that we don't wash our gear. You know, I know the science is developing on that stuff, but uh, another good example, I think. That's a, a perfect instance of slack. And we want to we want to change that mentality uh, for wearing your mask. The slack is taking your mask off early. That's not salty to me. Be the one in there breathing smoke. It's harder to keep your mask on. That's why people want to rip it off. That's why people want to take their pack off. It's not salty to be the one in there without your gear on. So those are all little instances of slack that we're in full control of, you know, that contribute to, it could be a line of duty death, or in this example, it could be cancer, right? Sure. And so tying that back into the course, again, you guys are developing the curriculum, developing these these practical uh, training evolutions. To, to eliminate that slack and to uh, create those markers, those recognition markers, and to eliminate that normalization of deviance in regards to fireground yeah. survival. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I mean, that's why no slack is our motto. Uh, it's on the patch, you know, uh, that you get at the end of the week for meeting the standards. Um, yeah. You know, but it, it's kind of become a, a catchphrase with even within within the instructor cadre. You know, we've. Uh, you know, whenever there's an instance where we come together and we're, we're planning the next drill or we're putting together the next drill and there's a couple times where maybe somebody would be like, eh, we don't, we don't need to do, we don't need that extra 50 foot line. Right. Or, you know, or we don't, we don't need this on it or we don't need that or whatever. And we'll just kind of look at each other and be like, no slack, got to do it. So it, it keeps us on course. It, I think it keeps the students on course of like, you know, the buy-in there and, and uh, pressing forward with that. So, yeah. Yeah, you've you created a culture uh, exactly. of, of no yeah. mediocrity. That's the idea. Yeah, and, and it, when you're talking about when you're talking about fireground survival, or you're talking about uh, rescuing people from a burning home, I don't think there should be any Absolutely. room for mediocrity, right? But, that yeah. that no slack mentality is a a nod to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Hackworth. If anybody's familiar. Oh, yeah. Familiar with him. Yep, definitely. He wrote a book called Steal My Soldier's Hearts in which he talks about taking command of the 39th Infantry Regiment of the 4th Battalion uh, during one of his tours in Vietnam. And he talked about the 439th having a horrible reputation. Morale was at an incredible low. Uh, He talks about a a six-month period where they suffered some 40% casualties, predominantly from friendly fire and from booby traps. And Colonel Hackworth realized that it was the little things that were getting his guys killed. You know, they weren't wearing camouflage out on missions or they weren't wearing their helmets on the fire support base. They weren't taking care of their feet or maintaining their weapons. And so in his book, he talks about one of the first things he did was reinstitute the tradition of saluting, which he would require an enlisted man. And they reported to an officer to salute and say, hardcore Rakondo, sir. To which the officer would reply with no effing slack. And the same thing is true in the fire service. If I if I was uh, a betting man, I'd say you're probably a Jocko Willink fan. Big time. Yep. Yeah. He talks about he talks about Hackworth all the time, and he talks about no if and slack all the time. Um, and I think he kind of built he built his trained their training regimen. He was a West Coast um, trainer of SEALs at one point in his career, and I think he built built all of that training around. Hackworth or, you know, um, but talking a little bit on combat, um, there's a book called, was it in combat, combat on combat, yeah. right? On combat, yeah. 
on combat. Talk about that a little bit, Chris. I think you're the one that mentioned it to me and, and how that, uh, you know, what that book talks about and how you tie that into the course. Yeah, uh, that's by uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Grossman. He's one of the, the leading experts out there on uh, predominantly training law enforcement on what to expect in police action shootings. But there are tons of parallels to our job. Um, in the book, he talks about um, different con- conditions that are associated with your heart rate. And he, he talks about condition red is typically when your heart rate is between 115 beats per minute and 145 beats per minute and how that, that is optimal for survival, right? That your heart's pumping, your blood's flowing, you're primed and ready to act. But once we start to creep up to that 175 beats per minute mark, we creep into condition black, which is not good for survival. That's where we experience different sensory distortions, you know, so tunnel vision or auditory exclusion or loss of memory, which all that can occur in training too. And we see it frequently when students are debriefing, you know, trying to piece together, you know, did we search two rooms or three rooms? And it's because their heart rate's elevated. Um, that can be due to physical exertion or stress. And they're starting to creep into that condition black. And to me, that that speaks volumes about how important physical conditioning is. Because if just the tone's going off, running to the truck, putting your gear on, you're up at 145 beats per minute. And now stretching a line and masking up and forcing the front door, you could easily be creeping into that 175 beats per minute range into condition black where you lose fine motor control. Um, you know, that's where that, that fight or flight response response starts to become an, an issue where it works negatively against us. Um, so we talk about that a, a fair amount through the course, the research he's done on those different conditions. I guess the first step is understanding that that happens to you. I think that all of us know that our heart rates elevate, especially if there's a serious call and you know that it's a serious call, but, uh, maybe understanding deeper of how, how you react uh, physiologically to that is going to help you. But I think there's nothing more important than practicing. Yeah. And that's something, right. something we know, right. That, that the stress of a catastrophic situation will impact you less if you prepared for it, even mentally, if you put yourself in that mind state mentally in training, it can start to make the way you would feel real world charted territory. If even just a little bit. Jens, I was going to move into the last uh, thing. Is there anything else? The big thing I want to add with, you know, uh, we talked about keeping students in the flow state. Uh, the only thing I really want to add there is uh, give the recognition where recognition is due. So uh, Dr. Judy Glicksmith is a uh, psychologist that took uh, another psychologist's work about being in a flow state that got popular in the business world. and um, she brought it into the fire service. Uh, that that was research done by a guy named Mihai Chikson Mihai, and she took his work and applied it to the fire service. She has a great book called Flow Based Leadership, where she applies it to how leaders in the fire service operate in a flow state. So I highly recommend her work and her book, and uh, recommend having her on your podcast. Actually, she'd be good. Oh, that would be legit. Yeah. How about you, Chris? You have anything? You know. I'll add with, uh, you know, Travis talking about keeping the students in a low state. Another thing that's a, maybe a little 
different about this course than your normal fire department course is that we built in room for gray area. Like I said, there's a, a firm standard, but we care that you meet the standard, right? I think a challenge that Air Force firefighting has is sometimes firefighting can seem very black and white, right? We've got our, our AFIs, um, we like our checklists, and that's all important, you know, for continuity's sake. I heard um, some of the Chief Morris or Chief Wagner say recently that there are some 11,000 firefighters total force across all of our installations. So that stuff's all very important, but it can make firefighting seem black and white, and it's not. There's lots of gray area, and that's that's that the the place for decision making. And an example of that that would probably be uh, highly controversial with podcast listeners is coming off the rig masked up. I'm sure there are plenty of installations where you come off masked up with a report of a working fire or you're wrong. And then there'll be plenty that think you should never mask up in the rig. And that gray area is, you know, if you've had the conversation with your crew chief that if we have a report of entrapment, the back step is going to mask up. We'll be off comms for that second. And then we're going to beeline to do whatever needs done. Then maybe it's a good decision. If you mask up and now you've got to go to the roof or, you know, it's cold out and you've got a yard lay. And so now your mask is all fogged up and you can't see and either you've got to stop and take your mask off or do something that we certainly don't recommend is to use your good air by opening your bypass to clear fog. Well, then it was probably the wrong decision. So that's something we were really intentional about is leaving room for that gray area. We want students to be in that flow state and do whatever they would do real world. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, Great, because now you know. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like you give a lot of autonomy to the leader of the crew, we have a, even the individual. That's, we have uh, a, a graduate of right. uh, class two, I believe it was, uh, Master and, uh Lancelotti, Harry Lancelotti. He's a, a Baltimore firefighter, captain on a rescue, and he uh, is an AC up at uh, Dover. Dover, yeah. And he talks about it. He's like, you know, the Air Force kind of tends to create a monster a little bit of, you know, there's like Chris said, it's black and white. You know, we're we're tied to our checklists and things like that. And that's all well and good. But, you know, there's you got to you got to create decision making in firefighters. That is a critical skill for a firefighter is being able to critical or critically think critically. So uh, we're we're hoping to kind of kill that monster right yeah yeah and you guys are definitely a part of killing that monster um not not to defend the air force um but uh, you know a, a big i guess a big variable is that we're just so young sure. and uh, inexperienced and so you know what do you do to make up for that aside from train well let's build a checklist so that we know what Absolutely. to do in this circumstance yeah. and, da, da, sense, da, da, da. and so yeah and and so nothing no, yeah nothing against yeah, the, the no. people that create the checklists and um certainly certainly nothing against the people that want to train to kind of to, to inoculate themselves to those stressful circumstances but uh you know it's just a variable within air force fire protection that we have and we have to kind of uh, contend with and, and like travis exactly. you said you know you just got to recognize that it's there yeah Guys, let's connect uh, statistics a little bit uh, to, to uh, you know, fire ground survival, rapid intervention, whatever you got, um, and, and talk about what 
Air Force firefighters can do right now. To, yeah, uh, so we, we pulled stuff. a lot of our statistics. Obviously, like we said, we've been saying this, this whole time, NIOSH reports are attached to every drill, every scenario. Uh, but we we pulled statistics from uh, Project Mayday or projectmayday.net. I recommend going on there. They have a robust list of all every stat you'd want to know about any Mayday incident that occurred between 2015 and 2019. What they found in gathering their data was 35% of the time uh, a Mayday is called, the firefighter who called the Mayday self-extricates and solves, solves his own problem, his or her own problem. Then another 26% of the time, it, the problem was solved by the victim's crew. And then 25% by the adjacent crew working in their area within the, like a, a search crew or whatever, if they're on the line. And only about 6% of Maydays are rectified by an actual RIT team or a RIT crew. Uh, so we've kind of implemented those statistics to build, you know, we spend a lot of time with fireground survival. Solve your own problem first. Never quit, which is a set of slack. Don't quit on yourself. Um, and then we create drills where you're oper- you're, you may be on a hand line and there's a mayday. You know, what do you do? Well, if you're on the nozzle, you don't want to leave it, right? So you still have to continue fighting the fire. But what if uh, your, your officer, you know, three corners back is like, oh, he did he say he's in on the Bravo side? That's right around the corner. You know, maybe I can solve the problem for him, right? So there's that decision making, right? That gray area that we leave up to them. You still have to call the mayday and things like that. But that's a lot of the the idea behind some of the drills. And then obviously we spend a lot of time on RIC operations, RIC tactics, and uh, how to how to formulate a RIC crew and what the roles and responsibilities are for each person. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of how the statistics tie into our drills. Uh, but but really what to me what the statistics say is that we gotta be ready for anything and everything, right? And it gets down to, you know, being prepared for whatever we you know going back to the jahari's window you're working on your fundamentals right uh there's a great quote by battalion chief of atlanta by uh, uh chief david rhodes and he's wrote a ton, ton of articles for fire engineering and whatnot but one of the biggest things i've taken away from him is he talks about how when a civilian calls 911 you know they don't get to call 911 and say hey my house is on fire my baby's trapped in the on on the second floor window or bedroom and i want you to send me engine eight because those guys know what they're doing and they're trained really hard and they're not they don't have slack in their organization right you know they don't get to do that who do they get they get who they get right and for us as firefighters if we go down in a fire and we call a mayday it's the same thing i don't get to get get on and say mayday 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 this is firefighter bender i'm on the second floor uh, send me, don't send me the RIT crew you have, send me ladder seven. Cause those guys really know RIT, right? Like I get who I get. So, and my expectation is whoever's coming in after me knows what they're doing and has trained on it and, and has worked at their, and at perfecting and mastering their craft. Right. So how dare we show up and be anything less than that expectation for the civilians and for any firefighters, any one of our brothers or sisters that goes down, right? Another 
buzzword in the fire service is how it's a brotherhood or sisterhood or whatever. And, you know, a lot of people use that as an excuse to say, oh, you know, hey, come help me move or, you know, I'm running a little bit late. Can you stay over for me or whatever? That's part of it. But the other part of it is you as an individual have to prove that you're a, a brother or a sister, that you are a reliable team member. And, you know, that just goes down to doing the little things, getting back to the basics. Um, you know, if you're, you, I know you had wit, we talked about wit Dotson on the, on the podcast, you were on your podcast and, you know, if you're on a pump panel and uh, on a fire, you can't afford to be anything less than wit Dotson, right? You gotta be, you gotta nerd out on that and, and provide the GPM necessary to put out the fire. And as well, if, if you're on the nozzle, you got to be able to deliver that GPM on target and quickly and efficiently, right? So that's kind of the things you can do right now is don't ignore those, those fundamentals of our job and call it preventing the rick, right? Let's, let's put the fire out so we don't have to bail out of the window to begin with, right? Um, and I know that with anybody listening to your podcast, you know, they're taking time out of their their day to listen to, you know, a couple firemen talk about fireman stuff, right? Which is awesome. But I'm also kind of preaching to the choir, right? The hard part now is taking that and spreading it to others, building others up around you. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Chris says all the time that I really like is that at FRAS, we're not, we're not just trying to make good firefighters better. We're trying to build an army. An army of firefighters that says the minimum standard ain't going to cut it. Yeah, awesome stuff, Travis, and uh, great advice. Chris, anything to add on that? You know, that that no slack mentality, like we've said over and over, is something each of us is in full control of. Right? And that's that's something any firefighter can do the very next shift they work. Check out your air pack all the way. Put your seatbelt on. You can commit to training every single shift, no matter how many runs you take. Something hands-on with your crew every shift, no matter what. You can work out every single shift. You know, all of that plays into eliminating slack within yourself and within your organization and to ultimately be prepared. And I, I like to talk about my worst fear on this job is to be put in a situation where a brother or sister firefighter or a civilian is counting on me and I'm not able to get the job done as a result of being unprepared. Maybe we're assigned to a, a writ that gets activated and we get to the down firefighter and we just don't know what to do. We weren't paying attention uh, during our writ training and we have no idea how we're going to package this individual and get them up the stairs. Or maybe I can't conserve my air. Maybe I didn't check out my pack that morning and I started the shift at 3,800 PSI instead of 4,500 PSI. And now those couple minutes are critical and we've got to call in the secondary writ to try to get the job done. Because I feel like when that happens, you have to convince yourself in your mind that everything that could have been done was done, but know deep down in your heart that you weren't ready for it. And that's one of the, the brutal realities of this profession, that anybody that's done this job for real for any 
significant amount of time will tell you there's been multiple times throughout their career that their knowledge or their physical ability, their training or their experience, all of that adds up to your work capacity as a firefighter. Those four things, your knowledge, your physical ability, your training and your experience. And there will be times throughout your career that your work capacity as a firefighter equals somebody's life expectancy. And that's that's what this course is all about for students and for instructors. It's part of the career long journey of being ready for whatever needs done, no matter what it might be. Yeah, again, uh, great advice, great points. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Um, for those listeners out there that want to participate in the class, how often is it happening? How do they how do they get involved or how do they sign up? Once a year. So uh, class four is scheduled for the 1st through the 5th of March, 2021. It's at Dobbins Air Reserve Base, their Expeditionary Combat Support Training Certification Center, their ECSTCC. And how many students can get in each class? Twelve. Twelve. Yep. Okay. And it's open to all DOD firefighters. So like Travis mentioned, we've had active duty, guard, reserve, civilians, um, Army, Navy, Marines, um, open to anybody. Uh, we do have a, a Facebook group out there, um, AFRC Firefighter Rescue and Survival. Um, it's open to any DOD firefighter. Um, and we use it as kind of an open forum. So we'll, we'll discuss some tactics and techniques on there. Um, and then it's also a good place for students that are training for the course to interact with students that have been through the course to get tips on how to prepare for it. Uh, yeah, I think a good idea would have videos on there that can, uh, you know, hey, little drills that you can replicate. You guys do stuff like that. I'm on, I'm a part of the group, uh, but I haven't. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what, what we deep for, into it Post videos yeah. and articles and things like that uh, relating to, you know, fire ground survival and rescue and talk about them. So. We'll we'll post the uh, as soon as the registration for class four opens, we'll post it in there. Um, Travis is the NCOIC for the course, so he's got a email list uh, for anybody that wants to be on it. As soon as the class posts, he'll forward it out. Um, his email is Travis Bender B E N D E R at us mil, and you know that should trickle down through the chain. Uh, we realize you know that's not always you know the most efficient, so. Regardless, if you're an Airman Basic or a Chief, you know if you, you're interested in this course, um, shoot him an, an email. He'll add you to the mailing list, and you'll be notified as soon as registration comes out. Um, that way, you can try to also push it up your chain of command uh, to get one of the twelve spots. Yeah, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for sharing all this stuff. Uh, motivating, and uh, you know, I know a lot of our listeners are going to enjoy it, and you probably have. Uh, a lot of people want to sign up for the class, hopefully. So, I hope. But, or, or replicate, you know, some of what you do in the class, you know, one of the two. And so uh, I appreciate your time, gents. All right. Thank you. Matt, thanks for having us on, man. We, uh, we know what it's like to have a labor of love. Like I'm sure this podcast is for you and Ben and man, you guys are spreading the good word. So keep it up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast and on our Instagram page at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. And if you like what you've heard so far, we humbly ask for your five-star review and feedback on Apple Podcasts. 
We want to share this content with as many Department of Defense firefighters as possible. And the best way for us to get after that and to expand our reach is with your rating and feedback on Apple Podcasts. Conversely, if we can improve in some way, we want to know. Reach out to us at thefiredogpodcast at gmail.com and let us know what we can do better. Lastly, please don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and coworkers on social media or at the firehouse. This is host Matt Wilson with guests Travis Bender and Chris Boykley. Until next time, stay safe.